1887, a group of former slaves ventured into Mississippi swampland, beating back blizzards, mosquitoes, and wild animals to form what would become the first all-black town in America. Mound Bayou had its own government, hospital, schools, even a zoo. Like so many other small towns across America, Mound Bayou's population has dwindled over the past decades. We went to see what the town is like today. I'm Brilliant Bow. I'm Rose Gilbert. Welcome to Jewel of the Delta. Sugar, salt, and flour. If you were a resident of Mound Bayou 70 years ago, those were the only three things that you had to go into town to buy. Everything else was either grown at home or exchanged among neighbors. Owning land helped the town's inhabitants to be self-sufficient. But over the past century, black people have continued to own less and less land in America. In Mound Bayou, the town's farmers are determined to not let the same thing happen to them. Fumika Mizuno has the story. There's a plot of land on the edge of Mount Bayou that doesn't look like most farms in the Delta. And that's where we have tomatoes, uh, cabbages, and collard greens. I love them. That's John Coleman. His family has been farming in Mount Bayou for four generations. Coleman grows soybeans on his own land on the west side of town. But when he's not tending to his own crops, he manages a community demonstration farm. It's run by Alcorn State University, and it aims to educate local farmers on sustainable farming methods. It's one of the only places in Mount Bayou where you'll find greens and vegetable crops. Coleman gestures toward the field, where rows of mustard plants are vibrant against the dark soil. In that one-acre plot, you can have three different types of, of crops in there. You can have greens for the springtime, then you can come back with peas, and then you can come back with greens again. Row crops like cotton, soybeans, and rice dominate agriculture in the Delta. But when Coleman was growing up, every farmer had a small patch of land at the back of the house that grew vegetables and meat for the family. And the land that provided a living for Mount Bayou farmers was theirs. It's a great deal of ownership. You know, when you, when you are able to own your own land, your own equipment, your own uh, home and things like that, you kind of got pride. And what you're doing and you are not working for nobody else at the end of the day you say you own this and you can be proud and that's what mom by you is all about that self-reliance created a sense of pride within the town's residents mitchell williams is 83 he's a retired farmer who's lived in mount bayou all his life you had your own garden your peas your beans and okra we didn't go to no store to buy no vegetable if there was something a family didn't grow, they'd just go next door. It was neighbor helping neighbor. But over time, farms in America have commercialized. The change has hit black landowners especially hard. At the peak of black land ownership in the 1920s, African Americans owned 14% of all farms. This was representative of the black population at the time. Now, only 1% of America's rural landowners are black. Even Mount Bayou has not been immune. I remember when we were going to school, and every step we made from, from where we lived to here was owned by blacks. Now, Williams says he can count the number of local black farmers on one hand. It's really heartbreaking when you think about it, to think that what has happened to the land that we used to own, but no longer own it. 
it can be disturbing. Why did this happen? During the Great Migration, millions of African Americans left the farmlands for industrial opportunities up north. Many black landowners didn't leave wills. Without a will, descendants can't get loans to develop the land. The USDA's systemic discrimination against black farmers created even more obstacles. An example of this is the Scott family story. From here to those trees over there, that's ours. And we grow soybeans. Willana Scott White is the matriarch of the Scott family. We ride in her son's pickup truck as she points out the plots of farmland her family owns here in Mount Bayou. That little nook right there is ours, that's our well. She points to fields lined perfectly with rows of soybeans. But just a few years ago, this land was unrecognizable, covered in thick, swampy overgrowth and stuck in the hands of the government. Their story begins in the 80s when the row crops were taking a turn. Farmers all over the Delta started getting into the catfish business to stay afloat. Ed, Will and his father, did the same. He was the first African-American in the U.S. to have a catfish processing plant. When he went into the USDA office to ask for funding to put fish in the ponds, he told him he wouldn't let him have any fish because he wasn't supposed to be growing catfish. You know, you're a black man. That's something white people do. Not only did Mr. Scott struggle to finance his catfish plant, insurance companies seemed to deny his requests for any type of loans at all. You go in to buy a tractor, you go in to buy a car, they had one price that they sold it to white people for and another price they sold it to black people for. You've got to pay more money. How can you make any money at all? He began filing complaints in the early 80s, but that was right when the Reagan administration cut funding for the USDA's Office of Civil Rights. The complaints filed by Mr. Scott had nowhere to go. But he wasn't alone. The tide turned in 1997 when Timothy Pigford filed a class action lawsuit against the USDA for discrimination. Pigford was a black farmer, and he was joined by 400 plaintiffs. Mr. Scott was one of them. We traveled all of the southern states trying to tell people about the lawsuit and get them to sign up. It was frustrating, but it gave us hope that because we knew that you have strength in numbers. Pickford versus Glickman remains the biggest civil rights lawsuit to date. Mr. Scott's case was the very last one settled by the lawsuit. It took three decades for the Scots to finally buy back their land. By then, Mr. Scott was near the end of his life. He told me that he was going to live to be 100 because that's what he had asked God for. And when he got his land back and we got back into farming in 2014, he says, I'm ready to go. I don't have anything else to do. So he passed away at 93. Now, Wilena is dedicated to educating people about the history of farming in the Delta. She plans to open a museum in Bolivar County. It'll preserve the story of the region's farmers like her father. My story is a story about the Scott family, but it could be a story about any farming family in the Delta. Back at the farm with John Coleman, he explains that educating young people about farming is meaningful, not just for the future of the profession, but for the future of the town itself. We are trying to uh, teach our kids that have a sense of pride of what you got. Because these people came on their sweat and their backs and built this place among Bayou. And we don't want it to go into ruins. We want it to keep succeeding. So that's why I love it. I love what my dad started off, and I want my son to be able to take it another step. And when I can look down in the clouds, or when, I, when I'm in my rocking chair, I can say, yes, 
as my son, he, he took it on. The average age of an American farmer is now 58. John Coleman's son is 29. He too has decided to go into agriculture. Land loss continues to hurt black farmers across the country, but here in Mount Bayou, one family is fighting against the trend. This is Fumika Mizuno for Jewel of the Delta. Special thanks to John Coleman, Walena Scott White, Mitchell Williams, Thomas Heron, and Louis Sanders. In our next episode, we dive into blues tourism. You're listening to Jewel of the Delta.